Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Brian Bible Church. We're continuing our study through the fourth gospel here. Lazarus opens his gospel with 18 verses that we would call a prologue. Now, in the opening prologue, he makes his thesis statement, and that statement is basically this. Yeshua is Yahweh in human flesh. Yeshua is the creator of the universe who has become part of his creation. He is the eternal God who has become man. This is Lazarus' message, that Yeshua is not a created man. He is God in human flesh. And I think that's the most essential Christian doctrine. We need to understand that. We need to grasp that. Now, the prologue contains uh, practically all the central issues contained in the whole rest of the gospel. He just kind of lays them out in the prologue, then he expands on them as we get into the gospel. This first section of the prologue, verses 1 through 5, presents the pre-incarnate word. The second section, verses 6 through 8, identifies the forerunner of the word's earthly ministry. And then the third section that we're going to look at this morning introduces the ministry of the incarnate word. Then starting in verse 19, he goes into the narrative part, which he starts to tell the story of Yeshua's life in the world. Now, we looked last week at this, these verses, the talk of John the Baptist. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light to all that might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Now, these verses are polemic, I believe. Because I think there were some people in John's day who were wondering if John might be the Messiah. And so he throws these verses in to make it clear, this is not the one, alright? He says, first of all, he says, there came a man. We had the word, now we have a man who was sent from God. He's just a witness, and he is not the light. He doesn't give us a biography like we have in the synoptics. He just introduces him in the light of his ministry. He's a witness. That's it. Get that, people. So those people, those cults at the time that were worshiping John, he's making it very clear. Now, in contrast to John, who was merely a man, Yeshua was the true light. He says, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. As we've seen in the past couple weeks, the true light is the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Godhead, who Lazarus calls the Word. Now, if we compare this verse to the King James We see there's some interpretive problems here. So let me put them both up there so you can see the difference, all right? As we've seen over the past few weeks, the true light is the pre-incarnate Christ, all right? And if we compare these two verses, we see some problems here. Look at it. uh... So what we have to ask here, does coming into the world modify man, as the King James does, or does it refer to light as the New American Standard, the ESV, and the NIV. Even the NIV got this one right, people. Now, grammatically, it can refer to either. But here, I think it's best as referring to the light because the phrase coming into the world is repeatedly used in the fourth gospel to refer to Yeshua leaving heaven, leaving the spiritual realm, and entering the physical realm and space and time. And the next two verses talk about Yeshua being in the world and coming to His own. So I think it's best to see this as the New American Standard has it. Yeshua is the light coming in to the world. Coming into the world in this verse is to refer to Yeshua's incarnation. That's what it's talking about. We're going to look at that next time. But He came into the world. He wasn't here. And at a point in time, He entered the world. This is a common dualism that we'll see all through the what's called the Johannian literature. He, he compares above and below. He was above, he came down below. He came to this world. And he calls him the true light. This uh, theme is repeated throughout the gospel. True is from the Greek word aletheos, which here refers to the it in the ultimate form, kind of like saying this is the genuine article. This is the real as opposed to the counterfeit. Look at 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. No wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So you have Satan coming as an angel of light, and he said, well, I want you to understand, this is the true light. All right? Yeshua is the true light. In the Jewish mind, that phrase would mean the authentic and the dependable light. Now, in the Tanakh, the prophets make God's light a dominant message in the messianic theme. So if they were familiar with their Bibles... 
And Yeshua comes on the scene, and He is the true light. They should have caught it right away, because all through the Scriptures, it was foretold that the light would come. Isaiah 9.2, a Messianic text. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine unto them. So the light's going to come. They should have been looking for the light. Isaiah 49.6, He says, Is it too small a thing that you should be My servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Understanding these texts, the Israelites should have been waiting for this light. And when John proclaimed the light, they should have caught on. Isaiah, also Isaiah 60, another messianic. Yeshua, we have the glory of Yahweh. And deep darkness, Yahweh will rise upon his glory, will appear unto you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So God's light came to Israel, and Israel was to share that light with the nations. They didn't do too good a job of that, did they? But this light was familiar through God's people, to God's people throughout the Tanakh. For example, Abraham saw the vision of the smoking oven and the flaming torch. Moses saw it in a burning bush. Israel saw it in the pillar of cloud and fire. The high priest saw it in the Shekinah glory over the Ark of the Covenant. So when Lazarus says Yeshua is the light, he's saying he's the fulfillment of Israel's hopes. He's the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. Now we know from the New Testament that Yeshua was working throughout the Tanakh. He was the spiritual rock, for example, that brought water to the children of Israel in the wilderness. We know He was actually the one on the throne in Isaiah 6. We don't really understand that until we get to the New Testament. But He's the one that the, this, the seraphim, the throne guardians yelled out, Holy, holy, holy. That was Yeshua. We know He's the Savior of Isaiah 52 and 53, the one who would be our substitute. But there was still a shadow around this whole concept and the idea until the New Testament came and the light was shown much more brightly. John 8, 12 said, Then Yeshua again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So He is the light. Let's go back to verse 9. He says He's the light who enlightens every man. You want to talk about a controversial phrase. Okay? What in the world does it mean He enlightens every man? Well, it depends on who you are, I guess. Okay? Robertson, in his word studies, writes this. The Quakers appeal to this phrase for their belief that to every man there is given an inner light that is a sufficient guide. So the Quakers believe every man has this inner light. You know, the inner light of God is in them. He says it's called the Quaker's text. But it may only mean that all the real light that men receive comes from Christ, not necessarily that each one receives a special revelation. So the light that comes, comes from Christ. Now the Quakers believe a person can elicit that revelation by meditation. If you just focus, and you don't need a Bible, you just meditate on your, you know, go into meditation... And they, they view this more as a, a special revelation and not just general revelation. The Wesleyans argue that this verse teaches that God has given all people what they call pervenient grace, which gives them the ability to reject salvation because this inner light is in them. They can choose it or they can reject it. But that view is kind of contradicted by the whole New Testament. Okay. Some see this verse as talking about general revelation which they see as coming through creation. In other words, God has shown through the creation that you know there's a God, and so that's the light. Others, like Calvin, see this as referring to the light of conscience that bears witness to God. Basically, you know, saying that in every man there is this conscious knowledge of God. And Calvin would use these verses to support it. And these, these verses are used, misapplied, I think, to support that view. Look at them. Romans 2, 14 and 15. But when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, 
their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So people read these verses, they say, there, they had the law written in their heart, it was there, you know, they knew about God. Well, that's kind of a misunderstanding. <clears throat> and that's, but that's how people see them. They, they see it as like, you know, okay, the Lord has written like the Ten Commandments on our hearts. Everyone knows what's good and evil. They, they know what they should do. They know not, not, they shouldn't steal. Every man knows that. They know that they shouldn't cheat. They know that they should tell the truth. Is that true? So the lady who in Africa takes her baby, or Indian, it takes her baby down and throws it into the Ganges River to worship and serve her God. Does she know she shouldn't do that? No, she thinks she should do that. Her conscience tells her because that's what she's been trained. So what does this mean? What, what are these verses talking about? Well, the New American Standards instinctively here, the King James, the NIV, have by nature. They're from the Greek word phusis. And Paul used this word to refer to the possession of the law. So phusis goes with possession of the law, not with the doing of the law. All right? He says it should be read this way. Well, let me, I think I have. That is, those who do not have the law by nature is what he is saying. When the Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively, fuzis, or by nature. In other words, the Gentiles don't have that law. It wasn't given to them. It was given to Israel. But they do the things of the law. And you're saying, well, if they don't have it, how do they do it? Um, let me show you this. Let me give you a translation. When the Gentiles who by nature do not have the law, do what the law requires, these not having the law are a law unto themselves. So they don't have the law, but they're doing the things of the law. How's that possible? How are the requirements of the law fulfilled in these Gentiles who never had the law? Well, verse 15 tells us. It says, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Gentiles, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. The requirement of the law is filled in them. How has that happened? Listen, it happens because it was. this is talking about Gentile believers and the law was written on their hearts because that was a promise of the new covenant. See, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things of the law, they're doing them because now they're a Christian, these, these not having the law are a law unto themselves and they show the work of the law written on their hearts because that was the promise of Jeremiah 31, 33, I will write my law on their hearts. And so they're doing it. It doesn't mean that naturally all people have the law of God written on them. No. it's the, Your conscience is just like a computer. Whatever you put in comes out. Garbage in, garbage out. You take someone and train them, this is right, this is right, this is right, this is wrong, this is wrong. That's what they believe. And their conscience tells them that. So unless your conscience has been programmed by the Word of God, it can really mess you up can really mess you up. If you've been raised in a legalistic background, there's some things that just are horrifying to you. They're not wrong at all, but because your conscience tells you, you can't do that. They're horrible. Alright, back to our text. Enlightens every man. The Greek verb here means to shed light upon, to make visible. I don't think this is referring to an inner illumination, but to the object of revelation of light that came into the world through the incarnation. It came to every man. Now, Again, the arguments go, every single man has the illumination of God in their heart. Well, that's not what it's saying. First of all, the ancient world was very exclusive. You understand that? The Jews hated the Gentiles. The Gentiles hated the Jews. The Romans hated the barbarians. The Greek thought if you weren't Greek, you didn't understand anything. You were just plain stupid. But Yeshua came to be the light to every man. And I think he's referring to all people. The light is there for all people. It's not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles also. Keener writes this. Yet every person could mean any person. Indicating universal availability in the relevant case. And I think that's the idea here. Now watch what he says here. I think this, or she says here, no, he. This is interesting. He says, given the variation of usage for such common terms... Lexical meanings cannot decide the sense of this verse. You understand what he's saying there? You can't grab your lexicon and look up what every means. Oh, every means this. 
Always means every. Every single... No, you can't do that with common words like this. All right, You have to read them in context. You have to read them in light of Scripture. All right, We could see this also as the light shines on every man and divides the race. Some, and some translate that way. Okay, the light does shine on every single individual and it just divides the race up. Those who hate the light, run from the light. Those who love the light, come to the light. We see that in John 3, 19 and 21. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. People count on that, okay? For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light. For fear his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that the deeds may be manifested as having wrought in God. Alright, people come to the light because their heart is right and they want to understand the truth. People flee from it because they hate it. Some receive this revelation and they thereby testify that their deeds are done through God. Now in the fourth gospel, it's repeatedly the case that the light shines on all and forces a distinction. Here's the light. Now choose. Run from it or come to it. It enlightens every man. This can mean we are enlightened. If we are enlightened, we're enlightened only by Christ. And that's the idea that Luther had. If, if you are enlightened, it's only going to come to Christ. He's the only one who can enlighten anybody. Luther says, There is only one light that lighteth all men, and no man comes to the world who can possibly be illumined by any other light. Augustine, who was probably the teacher of Luther, saw the same thing. That's probably where Luther got it. And Augustine says, Jesus Christ is the only man who ever gives light to anyone. If anyone is enlightened, it's because of Jesus Christ. So the only light in the world is Christ. He's the only light that can enlighten anyone. He's the only light that enlightens everyone. His light is the only sufficient light. It says He was in the world and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. Somebody has said, irony is painted all over verse 10. I mean, just think about it. He was in the world, the world was made through Him. He created, everything is created, and the world He created didn't know Him. He's the Creator. <coughs> excuse me, created everything that is in existence. Every man, every man who has life got it from Him. Every man who had light got it from Him. He was there, He created it, and the world didn't know Him. I think He was in the world refers again to the incarnation. Now the word world here, this is the Greek cosmos. It's used three different ways in the Gospel. It can refer to the physical world which we live in. Lazarus uses... The <laughs> Yeah, Lazarus uses the word that way twice in the beginning of this verse. He says he was in the world, and the world was made through him. He's just talking about the physical world, all right? But world can also refer to the spiritually corrupt world system dominated by Satan. Thirdly, world cosmos can refer to mankind as a whole, the human race. That's how it's used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Talk about the human race, mankind. Using this third use, Lazarus says... The world did not know Him. He came to what He created. The people He had created, He came to the world of men, and they didn't know Him. Because people's minds have been darkened by the fall. Even the light of the Word was incomprehensible to them. In Matthew 13, 55, the people say this, Isn't this the carpenter's son? Who is this guy? You know, he's just, he's just the son of a carpenter. He's really nothing. They had no idea who he was. All the stuff he did, they had no idea who he was. Now, as disturbing as verse 10 is, the next phrase is really gut-wrenching, the next verse. He says, he came to his own, and those who were his own didn't receive him. Remember that Lazarus wrote from the perspective of seeing much of the first century having passed. All right, He's writing late in the first century, with many of his Jewish friends refusing to believe in the name of Yeshua. Now, there are two different words employed here by John with a slightly different meaning here. The first his own is ha-idios, which is a neuter plural noun, and it means the things that belong to him. Here it probably means the entire cultural heritage of Israel. The second his own is hoi-idios. Here it's a masculine plural noun, meaning his own people. 
And Young's literal, which David read earlier, catches this difference here. It says, to his own things he came, and his own people did not receive him. Again, the value of Young's literal, if you want to understand what's really happening, it's a good thing to have, translation to have by your Bible, you know, to just pick up on some of these things very simply. Now, what does Lazarus mean by the things that belong to him and his own people? Well, the specific people who Yeshua visited in the incarnation were the Jews. All right? Were the Jews. He came to his, they were his own. And they were his own in a double sense. He created them. And then he brought them from himself out of the nations. Called them to himself. Now, when the word of God entered the world, he didn't come to Rome. He didn't come to Greece, Egypt, or the Eastern Empires. He came to Palestine. Why? Because Palestine was Yahweh's land. And you've got to get this as you're reading through the Scriptures. The various gods in the Scripture were territorial. Okay, They had their lands. Yahweh's land, Yahweh who's the God of gods and Lord of lords over all these, He had His land, and His land was Palestine. And the Jews were His people. Zechariah 2.12 Yahweh will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Portion here is halach, a noun that's related to the idea of inheritance, nachal. In Hosea 9.3, he says, they will not remain in Yahweh's land. So Yahweh had a land. You remember the story in 2 Kings 5 about Naaman the leper? He comes to Israel, Elisha heals him. And what's he ask for? He asked for dirt. Can I have a couple of mules worth of dirt? What the heck's going on there? Well, he realizes that Yahweh is the true God. He says, I got to go back with my boss, okay, who worships this pagan God. I got to go worship this pagan God. Can I have some dirt? Because when I get back there, I'm going to spread the dirt out. See, then I'm on Yahweh's land and I can worship Yahweh. It's the whole idea of territory. They understood Yahweh owns this land. So I want to take some dirt so I can worship the true God. All right? The Jewish nation is Yahweh's particular treasure. Exodus 19.5 Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. Psalm 135.4, for Yahweh has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. When Lazarus says the things that belong to him, I've got to believe he had in the back of his mind Deuteronomy 32. Because Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, give us an old covenant worldview. These two verses are fundamental if you want to understand the worldview of old covenant Israel. And these verses explain both the existence of foreign pantheons and their inferiority to Yahweh. This is when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. Alright, in Genesis chapter 10, you got the table of nations. God divided up the nations and He gave each one of these nations to a son of God. A lesser God. A watcher, if you will. When He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Ben Elohim, the watchers. Now, your Bible might have sons of Israel. Bad translation. When those nations were divided up, Israel didn't exist. Manuscript support definitely goes to what the ESV has here. ESV does a good job in a lot of these places translating. It's the sons of God. So God took the nations. The nations wouldn't worship Him. They wouldn't serve Him. So He says, fine, I'm done with you. He divides them up. He says, you like these other gods? You take them. Each God got a little territory. They all had their own territories. Yahweh's territory is Israel. But Israel didn't exist. And so you get to chapter 12 after the Tower of Babel and God calls Abraham. And he starts all over. I'm done with you. I'll start with a new nation. I'll take Abraham. I'll make a new nation. They'll worship me. They'll be my people. I will be their God. All right? Now notice here about inheritance. The word portion here, again, is halak. And it's a noun related to nahal, which is the word inheritance. Verse 9 clearly presents the nations of Israel, here called Jacob, as the allotted inheritance of Yahweh. Whereas the inheritance of the nations was the sons of God. So Israel was Yahweh's. They belonged to Him. They were His people. But when He came to them, 
They didn't receive them. They didn't receive them. The verb here can mean accept, but it also has the sense of receiving a tradition or receiving an inheritance. In other words, the very cultural setting in which should have been recognized and received because that's he created that whole thing. Because of the darkness, they didn't understand it. They didn't know who he was. This word receive is one of intimate fellowship. It's a word that's used of Joseph when after he's been told by the angel that Mary's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, he receives her into his home. He receives her as his wife in in this most intimate relationship. So he came to his own things and his own people didn't welcome him into fellowship. He came to his own people. He was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. It means house of bread. The bread of life was born in a bakery, the house of bread. I mean, the Lord made it really clear what was going on here. He was born to the family of David. He was heir to the Davidic throne. He came to his own things, his own people, his own friends, his own relatives, his own kinsmen. They didn't receive him. Of all the people that should have recognized the Messiah, Israel should have known him from the start. They had the law. They had the prophets that had foretold of Christ. They sang the Psalms that told of his coming, his suffering, his exaltation, and his rule. It was the very people who claimed to believe in the true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that rejected him. Barker writes this. This is a major theme of the gospel, the idea of the rejection of Christ by his own. The Jews did not accept him and did not recognize him because they lost touch with those very temple traditions that would have enabled them to know who he was. Even though they are not mentioned in the nativity stories until the 8th century, the ox and the ass of Isaiah's oracle were used in the Christian art as symbols of the Jews' failure. I think that's interesting. This is artwork. The ox and the ass that Isaiah talks about were used in Christian art. And they used them as a picture of the Jews' failure. He says, she goes on, to understand, Justin in the mid-2nd century said this, had been prophesied by Isaiah. And he's talking about Isaiah 1.3, the ox knows his owner. A donkey, it's master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people don't understand. And so the Christians picked up on that and said, these ox, the ass, that's a symbol of the Jews' failure. Israel does not know. Yeshua lived and walked among His own people for 33 years. 30 years in Nazareth, the people had Him there in their neighborhood. And the first time He comes back to preach... They said, let's kill him. For three years, he ministered in the land of Israel. He raised the dead. He banished illness. He demolished demons. He demonstrated his power over nature. They're on a boat and there's a storm. And he gets up and says, peace be still. And it just goes flat. It just takes my breath away thinking about it, okay? just goes flat. He controls storms. He walks on water. Showing this creative power. And what's the people's response? Crucify Him. What? Our Lord talked about His own rejection in the parable of the wicked tenant farmers in Matthew 21. Let's look at that. Yeshua says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. What's the vineyard? Israel. Okay, He's quoting here from Isaiah 5. Planted a vineyard and put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and rented it out to vine growers. I like this idea. Rented it out. The land wasn't theirs. That's so clear throughout the scriptures. The land is Yahweh's land. They're just getting to use it. He rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. Well, the vine growers took his slaves, they beat one, they killed another, they stoned a third. These are the prophets going to Israel, trying to warn them. No, they don't listen. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first. And they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son saying, they will respect my son. 
Now, the Lord knew that wasn't going to happen. But, but when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, hey, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and seize the inheritance. They took him. They threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. The crucifixion. The Lord's talking about his own crucifixion. Therefore, he says, the owner of the vineyard comes. What will he do to the vine growers? He's asking them, what's he going to do to the vine? And they say to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Yes, he will. AD 70 was proof of that, okay? But watch also, he will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers. Now hang on to that thought, because we're going to come back to that a little later. All right? So Yeshua comes to his own as Yahweh in the human flesh, and they hand him over to the Roman enemies, and they cry out, Crucify him! Crucify him! When you're reading this and you're actually thinking about it and you just, you're meditating on this verse, you're like, this verse is horrible. And then you say, thank God for the next verse. It says, but. But. The word but is a dramatic shift from the previous unbelief. But as many as received him, to them gave you the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. As many as received him, as many as believed in him, He gave the privilege, the right, the authority to be children of God. Receiving Yeshua consists of believing in His name. Okay, receiving Him, believing His name, they mean the same thing. Believing equals receiving, receiving equals believing. He gives them the right to become children of God. The word right here is from the Greek, exousia. It means the sense of ability or privilege. It meant the legal right, the personal ability. Lindars notes this. John does not mean that those who respond have a mysterious power within themselves. Nor does he mean they have personal rights against God. He means that the way is open for God's purpose to be fulfilled in them. They have the authority now to be His children. He can make them His children. It emphasizes divine authority to become what no human effort could accomplish. Now you have the divine effort. I think Cole gets this when he says this. The right means a legitimate claim, much like a birth certificate proves that you are the child of your natural father. We see this in 1 John 3.1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world doesn't know us. To get that people, that's why the world doesn't get us. Because they don't get Him. We have a legitimate right, think about that people, we have a legitimate right to be called sons of God. We didn't get snuck in the back door, alright? We didn't get there because we didn't belong. We have a right to be called the children of God. Now notice here, we have a right, he says, to become. This is the Greek genomai, which means to come to be. To enter into a different form of existence. We were not children of God. But we now have become because of faith in Christ Yeshua. So the nature of a true believer is not just somebody who follows in the sense of a student. It's not a person who is guided by a moral code. Not someone who has an ethical system. The true nature of a believer is he is a new creation. He is a child of God. That's who we are, people. And it's to those who believe. Now, listen up. This is a present Active participle, meaning those who continue to believe. Those who continue to believe. That's who believe in His name. I think that's significant. And that goes to the Calvinistic idea of the perseverance of the saints. You know, if you believe, you're going to continue to believe. Because that's what faith is. True faith, you continue in that faith. All right, continue believing. It has nothing to do with what you do, how you mess up, how you act. It's those who continue to believe in His name. Now, believing in His name, does that mean, well, if you think His name is Jesus, you don't get to go to heaven, okay? Because you're believing in the wrong name. That has nothing to do with that, okay? It has nothing at all. The Hebrew word for name is Shem. And it comes from Neshama, which we see in Genesis 2.7. Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
And man became a living being. Breath here is neshama. Your shem is your breath. Now, in Hebraic thought, your breath is who you are. It's your character. It's the real essence of what makes you you. Makes you different from everybody else. You can replace the word name in the Bible with character or essence of who you really are. The, to the ancients, one's name expressed the sum of the qualities that mankind had. Who he was. What made him. So to believe in the name of Yeshua is to accept as true the revelation contained in that name. The revelation that the Scripture gives us about that name. Because Yeshua died as a substitute sacrifice in the place of sinner. Belief involves relying on Yeshua for salvation rather than self. See, I think so many who are in the church, who are in churchianity, rely on themselves for salvation. More than Yeshua. And it's totally and only Yeshua that's to be relied on. You can't do anything. It's trusting Him. It is believing that Yeshua is fully man and fully God who came to redeem the world. Thomas Aquinas wrote this about this passage. Those who believe in His name are those who fully hold the same of Christ, not in any way lessening His divinity, nor his humanity. See, believers were given the means to access what his own had rejected. His very own people rejected him. We have the opportunity to believe in him. In the Synoptic Gospels, this is expressed in the parable of the vineyard that we just read. They were cast out. They were destroyed. But he lent it out to others. Okay? That's awesome. That's awesome for us. Okay? We'll rent out the vineyard to other vine growers, he said. Now, let me ask you a question here, and think with me on this, okay? Can you deny the Trinity and believe in His name? I got no's over here, I got yes's over here. Okay, listen, my answer to that question would be it depends on how you deny the Trinity. All right? Someone wrote to me and said this. Here's why I don't believe God is a trinity. Don't get me wrong. I do agree with a lot of the concepts of Trinitarians. But I just can't get on board with separate beings, persons. Belief of Trinitarians. Here's why. God is one. And he you know, quotes that. We know that God is one. We're not arguing that. No one said God is three. All right? I don't know why they are use this argument. Yes, no one ever affirmed anything different. God is one God. That's the whole concept here. All right? He goes on to say, Yeshua is the Word of God, which is God. John 1, 1. Okay, I'm on board with that. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. There's no separation of beings here. I disagree with him there. God is the I Am. So he's saying Yeshua is the I Am. All right? He's saying Yeshua is the I Am. All right? The being of all beings. He created beings. He can't have separate beings in Him. So he says that he doesn't believe in the Trinity, but he does believe that Yeshua is Yahweh. So to my understanding, he's believing in his name because that's who Yeshua is, all right? Yeshua is Yahweh. What this man believes is called modalism, all right? And as I said earlier in this study, the first verse of John, I think, destroys modalism. Modalism denies the distinction of persons in the Trinity. You got one God, he He acts like the Holy Spirit. He puts the Holy Spirit coat on. Now I'm the Holy Spirit. Now I'm the Son. You know, he's playing different parts, basically. All right? But in the first verse, it says, He was with God. That shows a distinction there, okay? So I think that if you deny the Trinity, but you believe that Yeshua is deity, He is God, I think you believe in His name because He is that. I don't think you have to understand the Trinity to be Christian. But I think you do have to understand that Yeshua is deity. Because a man can't help you, people. All right. Now, there's a preterist site that has an article on it that is anti-Trinitarian. There's no name on the article. Okay, So I'm not really sure if the writer, the person who wrote it is the, you know, the guy who does this website or what. Just curiously, there's no name on it. All right. But he says this, 
Jesus was called God, but does that mean Jesus was equal to the Creator Himself? Yes. He goes on in this article to try to demonstrate that Yeshua is only a man. He didn't come into being until Bethlehem. He never existed before that. He is nothing more than a man. He's a prophet, he says, but he's a man. I think if you believe that, you are not believing in his name. He did not come into being at Bethlehem. He always was. That's the burden of of the scripture. That's what dealing with the scripture will tell you. And see, my problem is, so okay, so what you're doing is you're trusting a man to save you. But see, if he's a man, guess what? He's sinned, because all men sin. Okay? And if he has sinned, then he's got to pay for his own sin. So how does he pay for yours? How does a man cover the sins of the world? How does he do that? Oh, he goes through great lengths. A long, long article. Okay? I read every word of it. It's nauseating as it was. You know? But he's trying to prove there's no trinity, you know, and he does it because he doesn't understand the whole hypostatic union. All right. But the bottom line is his Yeshua is a man. And if you got that as a man, I just I don't see that. And I, I'm not saying I'm not wrong, but I don't see that as believing in his name because his name is Yeshua. All right. Yahweh saves because he is Yahweh. All right. Lazarus goes on to say who were born. Not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now, the antecedent of who is those who believe in his name from verse 12. Lazarus defines this supernatural birth into divine sonship in the negative by listing three ways we're not born into God's family. Okay, he's given us three different ways here. You're not born. You're not born by blood. Literally, this text reads, who were born not of bloods. Plural. Bloods probably indicates the two parents necessary for a human birth. And this verse emphasizes that the birth of the children of God is not normal physical process. To the ancients, all bodily fluids were part of the life force. Hal Harris writes this, At least some sources in antiquity imply that blood was thought of as being important to the development of the fetus during its time in the womb. Thus, the wisdom of Solomon 7.1 says, In the womb of a mother, I was molded into flesh. Within the period of ten months, compacted with blood from the seed of a man and the pleasures of marriage. In John 1.13, the plural bloods may imply the action of both parents and may also refer to the genetic contribution of both parents, and so to be equivalent to human descent. I think he's right on there. The idea of blood's plural. It takes two people, okay? Two people to have a child. And he's saying spiritual birth doesn't come by blood. Namely, it's not a physical descent. It's not by your ancestors. You know, many of the Jews believe that because they were Abraham's descendants, they were automatically children of God. And the New Testament argues against that over and over. All right? He says, so it's not of bloods, nor of the will of the flesh. Anybody have an idea what this is talking about here? This refers to human sexual impulse. How are babies born? The will of the flesh. What's that mean? Well, somebody gets excited, you know, and they get together and guess what? They have a baby, okay? The children were conceived in parental passion. And that's a common ancient view. One Greek philosopher, I love this, he remarked that children don't need to be grateful to their parents for conceiving them. Most parents acted from passion rather than forethought. In other words, the parents didn't sit down, we need to have a kid. No, they just got excited. No, a kid. All right? So he said, don't kids, you don't have to be thankful to your parents. All right? So, so it's not, see, all these things have to do with procreation, basically. It's not a blood. It's not a two people. It's not just of the will of the flesh. You got excited and had a baby. All right? Flesh here is sarks. And in the fourth gospel, it's not the same idea that Paul uses throughout the New Testament of sarks. It just here is used more of physical nature. And this is confirmed by the very next verse, verse 14. It says, the word became flesh. He didn't become evil. He didn't become sin. He just became physical nature. All right? And basically saying the flesh can't produce children of God. 
Crossing the boundary from this, the world's realm into the realm of God is only possible by divine agency. He says, nor of the will of man. Now, the word that John uses here for man is andros, which speaks of a male, not the genetic term, mankind. Most of the time, this word is translated as husband, and the NIV interpreted properly as husband here. All right, Nor the will of the husband. And this probably refers to the father's authority to decide to have a child. Spiritual life doesn't come because the man decided we're going to have a child. See, all of these, three different expressions of human reproduction. Not of blood, it's not of just two people getting together and providing you know, each their own thing. And not of the will of flesh, not just about a passionate thing. And it's not the man decided. They're all denied as effective in creating children of God. Rather, the children of God are those who are born of the Greek. The Greek literally reads here, out of God. Alright, this verse ends with, but of God. And in the literal Greek, it's out of God born. This is ek theos ganao in the Greek. Ganao born is in the aorist passive indicative and it's placed last in the Greek sentence for emphasis. This emphasizes the initiating and sovereign role of God in the new birth. So they're not born by anything the human does. They're born out of God. God's answer to the deadness, to the blindness, to the darkness of the world is the new birth. Do you remember what Yeshua told Nicodemus in John 3? We haven't got there yet, but you read it, right? John 3, 3. Yeshua answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Listen, you can't see it. You can't receive it. You can't enter it. Everything hangs on being born again. Now, the question that people often ask is, do we first believe and then we're born again? Or are we born again and then we believe? The majority of churchianity believes the way it works is you believe, and because you did such a good thing of believing, God gives you new life. Okay? But Lazarus, if you want to really know the, the, the answer to the question, Lazarus tells us in 1 John. 1 John 5.1. Again, the ESV brings this out well, so we use it. Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Who believes is present tense here? And has been born is perfect tense. So believing in Christ, listen, is evidence of the new birth. You know, people say, well, I want to know if they're a Christian. I'm a fruit inspector. Let me see what they do. If you want to know if someone's a Christian, if you want to know they've been born again, the evidence is faith. Do they believe in His name? That's the evidence. It's not they do this or they don't do that. And depending on what your background is, it can be really crazy. Do they smoke? If they smoke, they can't be a believer. Do they cuss? They can't be a believer. Do they do this? Do they go to movies? You know, all this list of things, you know, that are nothing to do with the Bible, people come up with. John Stott, commenting on this verse, and John writes this. It shows clearly that believing is the consequence, not the cause of the new birth. Our present continuing activity of believing is the result and therefore the evidence of the past experience of the new birth by which we became and remain God's children. Spiritual life is ultimately the result of God's choice, not man's. Look at this passage in Acts. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. You know, Paul's preaching, everyone's coming out to hear, and the Jews are like, I hate this guy. I mean, they, they don't want people to come there. It's just a jealous thing. They don't even care about truth at all, all right? They began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Don't listen to that guy. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, Jews. All right? We, we spoke it to you first, but since you repudiate it, we judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. That had to just really tick them off. Okay, they hated Gentiles. We're going to turn to the Gentiles. Now watch what he does. For so the Lord has commanded, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the... He quotes Isaiah. That's what Isaiah said. The light was going to go to the Gentiles because you Jews are rejecting it. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And watch this. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Why did they believe? Because, well... They just thought, this makes sense to me. You know, I've, 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 I've weighed all the facts and it makes sense. No, they were appointed to eternal life. 
Paul tells us in Romans 9, it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God who shows mercy. Salvation is of the Lord. This is fought against so hard in our culture that it isn't even funny. All right? It's amazing how often it's set forth plainly in the Word of God that salvation is of God, but people love their free will and they cling to it and they hang on to it and it's just, to me, it's an oxymoron. Your will is not free. A free will would be a will that is uninfluenced by anything. So if you live in a vacuum and there's nothing affecting your decisions, then you can make any decision you want. But there's things that do affect your decision. Uh, your finances affect some decisions you make. I'd really like that, but guess what? I can't. I don't have the money. All right? So your, your will is in, it's in bondage. You can't just make the, the choices that you want to make because your intellect thinks certain things. All right? So people just don't have this idea that free will, and as far as salvation goes, it's so clearly taught that the people who believe were the ones that had been appointed to eternal life. Now, let me share with you, as we close here, just an interesting side note on verse 13. I thought this is pretty fascinating. The great majority of the manuscripts on the fourth gospel, some of who go back very early, read just the way it is here, who were born, and refers to being the many who received him from verse 12. But some ancient manuscripts, and some of the ancient fathers had these manuscripts that read not who were born, but who was born. Singular. What's the difference there? Let's notice the context of verse 12. But as many as received him, to them they gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who was born. See, that refers to Christ. Verse 13 is referring to Christ that way, okay? If that's correct, this text is suggesting the virgin birth of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. He was not born of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man. He's born of God. However, in light of the fact that the manuscripts are relatively few and not nearly as ancient as some that read the plural, we're going to stick with the plural. That's probably correct. All right. But I just thought it's fascinating. Wow. Just, you know, you change a word in here, you change the, you know, and all of a sudden it could be total different meaning. But as many as received Him, Christ was rejected by the very people He came to save. But thank God, He reached out to the Gentiles also. And it was always in His plan. As He dispersed the nations, back in Genesis chapter 10, He always had a plan that someday, even as He called Abraham, He told him, you're going to be a light to the nations. So in the, in the very calling, you know, in the very rejecting them and calling, I'm going to reach back out to those nations. I'm going to be a light. So the ones who rejected him, but to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who believe in his name have the right to be children of God. Bottom line here, people, we are Yahweh's family. We're his children. You know how your children do certain things and you get embarrassed? Enough said. We're His children. So let's honor Him by the way we live, by the things we do, by the things we say. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Father, it's so exciting to just look at the Scriptures and see what they say. Lord, I pray You'd teach us. I pray You'd give us hearts that are teachable. I pray You'd give us the spirit of Bereans that we would not believe anything we hear without examining it, studying it, and doing some background work ourselves. Lord, thank You for Your grace to us. Thank you for this morning, Lord, and the privilege to worship you through song and to study your word together. Amen. All right. Questions? Comments? Stan. I have a twofer. Go back to your last verse. 13. A twofer. Yeah, twofer. Uh, this isn't my doing. I guess I heard this from someone a long time ago. Okay. Which, which yours was unique. I said, well, that makes a lot of sense. But one of the wills, I don't know if the will of flesh or will of man, I can't remember which one, but they were saying we will ourselves to be saved. Right. Yeah, that's a common that's a common view of that. You know, in other words, you can't just, it's not about your will. That's a common view, but that's not what this is talking about. And I agree with that, okay, but that's not what this verse is talking about. Because all the, every one, all three of these are dealing with, human birth and how birth takes. And that's the fascinating thing. When you just read that, if you don't really study, if you don't get in the language and you don't get back to the culture and understand what's going on here, you think, yeah, this is just talking about you made a decision. No, it's talking about the Father's decision 
And it's talking about human passion, and it's talking about bloods mixing together to make a person. So, yeah, it's a whole, it gives you a whole different idea, you know? In verse 9. Verse 9. Now, this one, I might be out to lunch on, but this isn't what I, you know, I read into it. Okay. It's totally, you got to go back to verse 9. I, I can't go back on the slides. It, it, I don't know where verse 9 is on there, but go ahead. Uh, well, I don't have it with you. Okay. <laughs> Let me read it to you. All right, John 1, 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. All right, that verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world didn't know him. Oh, it was, it was 10. I'm sorry. Okay, that's all right. The world was made through him, the world didn't know him. Yeah. The way, you know, I, like I said, I might be out to lunch on this, but, you know, because they didn't know him is uh, God's sovereignty or not. Yeah, they were blinded. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. That's the whole thing. You know, why were they blinded? They were blind because of sin. And they were blinded because of sin because man chose to walk away from God. And so they're blinded. And yeah, so the light comes and they don't see it. They don't see it. Even his own people who he gave everything to, the sacrifices, the ordinance, they didn't see it. They didn't get it either. Men are blind. It's so, like I said, it's so easy to prove men are blind. Just look at, just look at so many things, you know. How does Yeshua do what he does? And they're like, nah, crucify him. No, I keep him around. He feeds. Look at all the people he just fed. And keep him around. You know, why would you want to kill somebody that's giving you a free lunch? You know, Americans would love that kind of stuff. Alex? Did, didn't God blind them on purpose? Yes, he did blind them. But I think, I think the blindness on man goes back to the fall of man. Man chose to, you know, man had, he was in fellowship with God. He chose, no, I want to do this. So he got put out of the garden. And because of that, he's been wandering around in darkness. Ever since. Gary? This just came to me today, so this is not a well thought out question. The, um, it seems like people want to talk about free will, their free will, so often. And it seems like oftentimes man's free will leads to darkness or sin. That's, that's their free will. Yeah. I mean, it leads to mistakes and to murder. <clears throat> Yeah, I think your will gets you more in trouble than anything else. You know, you make decisions that, you know, I'm going to do this, and, well, later you regret what you got to do, you know. But, again, it just, I think the term free will bothers me because it's an oxymoron. Your will is not free. Luther wrote a book about this thick called The Bondage of the Will. And he just goes through the whole book trying to show you, you can't, your will's not free. You can't just make choices. There's other things in life. I can't choose, you know, to eat asparagus. Why? As I hate it. It's nauseating to me. So I don't have free will. I can't do that. Why? Because my body says, no, that's not good for you. Now, I take it back. I'm learning to eat it because when I was a child, I, I never liked it. And as a child, I never liked liver. And so I don't have free will to eat liver. Okay? Matter of fact, every time my parents would have it, I would cut it up and I'd hand it under the table to the dog. And you know what happened? Every time we had liver, the dog threw up. <laughs> Well, eventually my parents caught on. And my argument was, if it makes the dog sick, why do you want me to eat it? Jeez, come on, give me a break. I thought it was an argument in my favor, but they didn't like it, you know. (laughs) Anybody else? Questions? Ricardo from Miami, Florida. Hey, Ricardo. Glad to have you with us. He says, regarding Yahweh's retribution of the son being killed who was sent to the vineyard, how does that relate to the turning the other cheek? Or would... There is a time for all things be applicable in this scenario. Yeah, see, here's the thing. <laughs> Yahweh tells us, Yeshua taught us, that we are to turn the other cheek, not to retaliate, okay? I don't think that was so much as retaliation as judgment, all right? And I think there's, there's definitely a difference there. There are laws, and the Lord laid the laws out. Okay, Israel, I will bless you if you do this, if you only serve me, if you only, I created you, so here's what I want you to do. They decided to go the other way. So in Deuteronomy 28, you got 15 verses telling you how great it's going to be to serve the Lord. And then you got like 50 verses telling you if you mess up, here's what's going to happen. All right, they messed up. They did it anyway. So he did what he said he was going to do. It's the action of a judge, and it's not the action of retaliation. All right, retaliation is an impulse that we're upset by something, so we just respond to it. Yahweh's not responding. He is a righteous judge who laid out the precepts ahead of time. They violate it, and therefore, guess what? 
He dealt with them. Gary Cole asked, doesn't Yahweh blind men? Absolutely. He blinded national Israel, didn't he? Absolutely. He has mercy on who he has mercy. That's right. I mean, that's so clear that he blinded national Israel. We're going to get to that as we go through the gospel. He makes it very clear. They were blinded because of their sin. They made a choice and they walked away. And he gave them everything possible and yet they just couldn't see it. And like I said, it had to be supernatural blinding because you can't see some of the things that they saw. The Exodus. The Exodus. You're walking through, you get through the Red Sea, all the things, all the plagues, you see it all, you get on the other side and you're cussing at Moses. Why did you do this to us? What? Something's got to be. They're either mentally deranged or they're blinded by God because they don't, they don't get it. Yeshua, same thing, does all these incredible miracles, raising the dead, you know, healing the blind, calming this, doing all these things, and they still, let's crucify this guy. What? You, you'd think you'd be afraid to death of him, you know, like Peter was when he realized who he was. He falls on his face, you know, I'm unworthy, Lord. That should have been the response, but no, they just, because they were blinded. Anybody else? We done? Gary? Uh, Bruce? Bruce, go ahead. Uh, so, uh, and now you're saying the Jews were blinded, but at the fall, weren't all men blinded? Yes. So not only them, but all men. All men. And the only way that they're going to come is when they're called. They have to, give li- they have to be given life. Yes, that's, that's, that, that's clearly what I believe. All men are blinded, okay? Jews, Gentiles, they're all blind, all right? Until God gives light. And that's the thing. They have to be born of God. And until they're born of God, I mean, again, the Scripture makes... This has nothing to do with you. It's a thing of God. If it had to do with you, you could get up during testimony time. I praise me that I am smart enough to make this decision. No, the praise goes to God because it's His work alone. Out of His sovereign choice, He decided to save you. And the evidence that you've been saved is faith. 1 John 5, 1. He that believeth, Yeshua is the Son of God, has been, past tense, born of God. You've been born, that's why you believe. But we got it all backwards. We think we did it. We believed. And then, you know, why? And then, see, if you think it's you, you initiated, well, I figured the facts out, and I believed, and therefore, I got saved, and I'm good. And you're a dummy. You're not smart enough to look at it. You, don't, you just don't have the sense to look at it. And then it becomes human pride. You start looking down on people. Boy, they're dumb. They couldn't. They can't figure this thing. It's not that hard, but they can't figure it out. And it's just, it's sickening because God says, it's up to me. I do it. Alex. I'm being technical. All right, you go ahead. I'm being nitpicky with what you said. You said they were blinded by sin, but didn't Jesus say, you know, that he blinded them so that they wouldn't come to him? And he says, like, I forget which passage, but he says, like, uh, and so they were blinded so that they wouldn't turn to me because then I'd have to heal. Right. So yes. He blinded them specifically, but you were saying that they were blinded by sin. Okay, because we go back to the reason the blinding took place is because of the fall. See, I go back to Genesis 3. Man's in the garden. Man is in the temple of God, fellowshipping with the living God, seeing God, the second person, walking in the garden, fellowshipping and they decide, I'm going to disobey them. Because of that, blindness comes. He blinded them because of their sin. They took the initiative in sin. He blinded them because of that. And like I said, you, you don't even get the, a flavor of that until you read the book of Adam and Eve. And just see the agony and the peril that they're dealing with every day because they've been put out of that garden. We just think, okay, they're out. They went on with their life merrily. No, Adam continually tries to kill himself. Because he just hates not being there. He keeps going back to the garden. Can I please have just a little bit of food from the garden? Can I have a little bit of the water from... And God's like, no. Okay, you're out and it's gonna, your redemption is not going to come until the Word comes. The Word becomes flesh and fixes all this. But you just see the terror and the hatred of the darkness and being put out of the garden in those books. They're well worth your read. Anybody else? You thought of it? God created all these people, but He deliberately created some for destruction. Yeah. Uh, people don't like that, I know, but you know, hey, uh, you know, again, it, it, the, 
I guess I live with it because I go back to the garden. You know, Adam represented us. He sinned. He was our representative. We get what he got, okay, because of him. All right? So, you know, people say, that's not fair because I didn't get to choose. Guess what? You'd have done the same thing because look at Israel. All right? He says, okay, Adam fell. People, you weren't fair. Okay, I'll, I'll choose this people of Israel. I'll give them my law. I'll give them my give them, I'll be there with them. And guess what? They did the same exact thing. Everybody does the same exact thing. Until God does a change in us, we're rebellious. We're anti-God. We walk away from God. Even as we're Christians, we know the battle that's still there, you know. I say often, if you don't make yourself sick, I don't know that you're where you need to be spiritually. Because <laughs> it's a constant battle. All right? You look at things and you look at yourself and you're like, why do I think that? Why do I do that? I'm a child of God. You know, and it's just it just shows you. And, and it makes you, I think, really appreciate grace. So... Adam was made deliberately to sin, to fall. God knew he would. I, I, here's my, my view on it, okay? I view, I, Adam was human. Alright, people say, when Adam fell, then now all men are made sinners. I don't think that's true. I think Adam was born human, and I think it's a propensity of humanity. That we're rebellious, we're willful, we want to do things our own way, and so just because the sake he was human, making him human... God knows this man is not going to last. He's going to fall because God knows humans. And I don't think that ever changes. That's why I said, even in our own life, after we become Christians, we still have this propensity to do wrong. You know, I mean, we can be reading our Bible and thinking evil things, you know. It's how great we are, you know. And you just, again, it goes back to grace. When you really understand who you are, then you're so appreciative of grace. You know, anybody who doesn't understand their own depravity probably doesn't appreciate grace that much because they really think a lot of themselves. You know, but when you know how corrupt you are, when you know how evil your own heart is, <laughs> you're so thankful for the grace of God. I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I can't grasp is the bottom in unending grace that we so that's what's so incredible, you know? He forgave our sins, past, present, future. He just forgave us because He loved us. He set His love on us because of who He is, not because of anything. There's nothing in us. And so it's just nothing but thanksgiving that pours forth from us from a, a wonderful God who you know, could love the unlovely and reach out to them. 